So today marks the end of our 16-week series that we have done in Genesis 1 through 11. We have called it Roots, and we've been exploring together how the oldest stories known to man, the oldest stories of the human race, shape our understanding of where we've come from, and they tell us where we are going. So what we want to do today, having covered a whole lot of ground in Genesis 1 through 11, is we want to try to tie up some loose ends. We've covered a lot of deep, heady, controversial topics. We've talked about race and culture. We've talked about gender and sexuality. We've talked about sin and death. Because what we found is that Genesis 1 through 11 is not just a collection of cute, cuddly, bedtime stories that you tell your kids or your nieces or nephews. These are stories that make up the the master narrative that is supposed to control our lives and to control our destiny. So today, this final sermon in this series, we want to call it Rooted. Because hopefully if we've learned anything from exploring our roots, it's this. That we must be rooted in the story of God. God wrote this story. It's his story, first of all. And he writes us. He grafts us into that story. And he calls us to be rooted in it. And to allow it to shape us. Not the other way around. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the last part of Genesis chapter 11. Then we're going to read the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 12. And that's where we're going to end this series. Most of this sermon is just going to be focused on the first three verses of chapter 12. But I do want to make a couple of comments about some of the rest of it. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 11, I should have the verses on the screen, begins with one of these genealogies that we've become a little bit accustomed to from Genesis 1 through 11. It says, these are the family records of Shem. Shem lived a hundred years and fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. After he fathered Arpashad, Shem lived 500 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Arpashad lived 35 years and fathered Shelah. After he fathered Shelah, Arpashad lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and fathered Eber. After he fathered Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and fathered Peleg. After he fathered Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and fathered Ryu. After he fathered Ryu, Peleg lived 209 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Ryu lived 32 years and fathered Sarug. After he fathered Sarug, Ryu lived 207 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Sirug lived 30 years and fathered Nahor. After he fathered Nahor, Sirug lived 200 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and fathered Terah. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died 
in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the site of Shechem at the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were still in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. All of us appreciate a good story. Hopefully, as I've said, what we have begun learning here in Genesis 1 through 11 is that the Bible is not a collection of stories about you and I. That's really what we like to do. We read ourselves into the text. And so we make the story of Noah a story about us. And so we can sometimes come to the text and we have all sorts of fanciful understandings and interpretations, but these are not fundamentally stories about us. They're not even fundamentally stories about the characters in the story. The story of Noah is not about Noah. The story of Noah is about God. The story of Adam and Eve is a story about God. The story of Cain and Abel that we've covered and the stories of Enoch and Methuselah All of this stuff that we've been unpacking for the last four months in Genesis 1 through 11. These are not stories about individual human beings who lived and died, although they certainly did that. These are stories about God. Stories that reveal the awesome, majestic character of the creator of the universe. And it's a story about him that he writes us into. And then he brings that story to bear upon our lives. And urges us to submit our lives to that controlling story. I want to show you two pictures. Because for any community to know where it's going, we need to know where we've come from. People always talk about how the past is the key to understanding the present and figuring out where you're going in the future. So I want to talk for a second about these two guys. Most of us live here in the neighborhood of Crown Heights. Some of you may be familiar with the story of both these individuals. Some of you may not. Of course, that's Jackie Robinson. He's more famous. First African-American to play in Major League Baseball. He played for the Brooklyn Dodgers right here in Crown Heights. Not quite as nationally famous is Rabbi Mendel Schneerson, who, when he was alive, led the uh, Chabad... Uh, Lubavitch sect of Jews uh, that is headquartered right here in our neighborhood. There's about ten to 20,000 Chabad Jews that live here in Crown Heights. Why do I share this? Well, because understanding where you've come from is key to understanding where you are and where you're going. Our neighborhood has experienced a lot of conflict, a lot of tension, in particular over race 
and class. Understanding the stories of these two men is key to helping us understand the story of our community, the story of our neighborhood. Jackie Robinson faced incredible odds to be that first person to defy and to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball, and he did it right here in Crown Heights. So Rabbi Schneerson's story is a little bit different. Uh, As the leader of this particular sect of Jews, um, he encouraged the Chabad community never to leave Crown Heights. Um, Many of them right now are being displaced because of gentrification. They're struggling to stay. But back when he was alive, he preached a, a pretty fiery sermon saying that Jews had to stay in Crown Heights. And it led to increased conflict between Jews and minorities in the neighborhood. In fact, it was his motorcade in 1991 that sped through an intersection and hit a seven-year-old boy named Gavin, who was from Guyana. And Gavin's resulting death sparked the three-day race riot in 1991 here in Crown Heights. I know what many of you are thinking. You're like, I didn't live here in 1991. Or if I was as a kid, I barely remember it. It's the story, it's the roots of this story that affects our neighborhood in the present. Now, I'm not an expert on what Crown Heights should do in the present or what our future as a community should be. But I do know that if we don't understand where we've come from, if we don't understand the roots of the story of conflict, particularly along race and class lines, we're never going to know how to move forward. Because in order to figure out where you're going, you have to understand from where you've come. And that's what Genesis 1 through 11 is all about. If you recall, 16 weeks ago when I started this series, um, I said that Genesis 1 through 11 played a super important role in what is called the Pentateuch or also called the Torah. So that's the first five books of the Bible. And God gave the first five books of the Bible to the Israelites as they were preparing to march into the promised land. They were going into this this country called Canaan, this region called Canaan, and God had said, it's yours. I'm giving it to you. March in, conquer the land. This land is your land. But before he just sent them in, God decided to tell them a story. A story that would remind them from where they've come. A story that would shape their way of life. Because you see, God was not just interested in giving them a land. He was interested in being in right relationship with them in the land. And he, was, he cared about teaching them the right way to live in the land. So that's what Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, they're all about preparing the people of God To live in the land. So how does Genesis 1 through 11, this part that we've covered in this series, how does that, how do the first 11 chapters of the Bible fit into the Torah? It's pretty simple. These first 11 chapters are just designed to show the Israelites their roots. They're designed to help them understand where they have come from. Why does it matter how they live in the land? Well, Because they trace their roots back to a creator, God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Why does it it matter that they're in a covenant relationship with God? Well, because God made a relationship first with Adam. And then God made a relationship with Noah. And then ultimately God makes a relationship with Abram. 
You see, all of these stories were designed to nourish the roots of Israelite identity. So many of us struggle with identity issues. Kevin talked about this a few weeks ago when he preached on the Tower of Babel story. We struggle to figure out who we are. We look in the mirror and we're not entirely sure who we are. We get our identity from our work. So then when we're laid off, we feel horrible about ourselves because our identity was wrapped up in what we do. Our identity is frequently wrapped up in our, in our culture, in our political beliefs. Whether we, we are lucky enough to own a home in Brooklyn or rent, probably none of us own, but, but that affects our sense of identity, right? How far along on the American dream are you in your pursuit of all of this stuff that comes with it? Gender, sexuality, race, all of these speak very clearly to our identity. What Genesis 1 through 11 does is it nourishes the roots of ancient Israelite identity to help the Jewish people understand as they move into the land that this is who you are. And because you are this, here's how you're supposed to live. Because the story is not just given in a vacuum. The story is the controlling story of the universe. And it has ethical implications for every square inch of life. Because this is a story unlike any other. This is not a story that Hollywood has dreamed up. This is not a story that, that uh, your, your, your best novelist has crafted. This is the story of God. So it's in this story that God calls us to be rooted. And that's really the big idea of this sermon. That's been the big idea of this entire series, that God made us to be rooted in his story. Now, I want to spend most of my time talking about the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. But before I do that, I want to make a couple of comments about this genealogy. I should have a picture uh, of the genealogy up on the screen. So Genesis 11 begins with or ends with one of those genealogies. Now, if you're like me, you know you're supposed to respect the Bible, and so you can't say anything bad about it. But inside, as the genealogy is being read, and it's like, you know, he had kids, and then he lived 500 years, and then he had kids, and he lived 500 years, and then he had kids, and he lived 500 years, and you're like, okay, like, I can't say anything bad about it because it's the Bible, but like, when are we going to get to the good stuff, right? I bet some of you are thinking that. You won't raise your hand and admit it, uh, but I'll just say that, that I struggle with thinking that too, okay? So maybe that gives you a little, a little um, leeway there. But the ancient Israelites would have never looked at a genealogy that way. Because they understood that this ancient genealogy was crucial to establishing their roots. So, uh, two things that I want to say about this genealogy. First off, is that this genealogy helps the Israelites trace their lineage all the way back, ultimately, to Adam. So, in chapter 5 of Genesis, which I preached on like a month and a half ago... Um, there was this other genealogy that went from Adam, the first person, uh, up to Noah. And then the writer of Genesis stops, and we have some stories about Noah. Then Genesis 11 
the end of this chapter gives us another genealogy, and it goes from Shem, who's the son of Noah. So it basically goes from Noah down to Abram. And then Abram is the father of the Jewish people. And it kicks off God's whole plan in history. So the Israelites, as they're reading the Torah for the first time, as they're preparing to march into the land, they're, they're reading these genealogies and they're saying, oh, like we are connected to real history. We have roots that go back to the garden. We have roots that go back to the first man because there is a connection from Abram back to Shem and then from Shem and Noah back to Adam. So we have continuity. We have roots with what God was doing in the garden. When God created humanity for a purpose, a purpose of beauty, a purpose of design, a purpose to build civilization and to create a culture that would reflect his glory. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And so the Israelites would not look at this genealogy, roll their eyes and say, let's get to the good stuff. They viewed this as the good stuff. Because it helped nourish the roots of their Israelite identity. We'll come back to that again. But the second thing I want to say about this genealogy is what's not in it. And how it's different from the Genesis 5 genealogy. Some of you were with us when I preached Genesis chapter 5. Who can tell me what that genealogy emphasizes? Anybody remember? Dan. Dan. And he died. It's this three-word phrase that is over and over and over again. It says, so he had kids and he lived so many years and, and then he died. And then he had kids and he lived so many years and then, and then they died. And, and he had kids and he lived so many years and then he died. And he died and he died and he died. It's almost like death is a, is a crescendo. And the writer of Genesis writes the genealogy in such a way to emphasize the finality of these people's existence, they died. Why is that significant? Because in Genesis 3, God told Adam and Eve, you sin, you're going to die. And so they sinned, and they set in motion this death. The world itself would begin to die. They, as human beings, would begin to die, and it would ripple down to all of their descendants. And so Genesis 5, only two chapters later, after sin is introduced into the world, shows us, the far-reaching and universal effects of sin. Every single person is dropping dead. And he died. And he died. And he died. But Genesis 11 is not written that way. It doesn't emphasize death at all. In fact, it barely mentions the idea of death. Now, is the writer of Genesis saying that that the people in this genealogy live forever? Of course not. Everybody knows that people don't live forever. But the writer of Genesis writes it differently because he wants to emphasize something different. So if you notice this genealogy, it's going from Shem and, and people are having kids in different generations and the family tree is moving along and then it kind of branches out here. When Terah has some sons and one of them is Abram. And what God is going to do in this moment, this moment of history, is he's going to redirect everything for his grand and glorious and beautiful design. 
The genealogy is not meant to emphasize death. It's meant to move us toward the idea of a promise. You see, there was this ancient promise. It was ancient even in the time of Abram. There was this ancient promise that had been given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The first mention of the gospel. When Adam and Eve have sinned and they stand before a holy God and God says, now I must kick you out of the garden. You're going to be exiled from the presence of God. But there is coming the seed of the woman. I believe that's a, that's a hint of the idea of the virgin birth. God says there is coming someone who will be the seed of the woman and he will crush the serpent's head. Who was the serpent? The serpent was the devil that tempted Eve and Adam in the garden. What God says in Genesis 3.15 is that across the ages, there is going to be a grand battle between the forces of good and evil. But ultimately, he who was born of a virgin will come and crush the serpent's head. He will cut it off. He will defeat evil. He will banish injustice. And he will lead his people back into the garden. He will lead his people back into the presence of God. That's the promise that Adam and Eve cling to as they're kicked out of the garden. I think that's the promise that they're clinging to when they come to the edge of the garden and offer sacrifices. That's what Cain and Abel are doing, apparently because that's what their parents taught them to do. And they stand there seeing this cherubim, this, this fiery angel with a flaming sword keeping people back from the garden, keeping people from the presence of God. But they're clinging to this promise that one day, one day a hero is going to come who will crush the serpent's head and will bring them back. And they'll get back into that garden. They'll get back into the presence of God as they were created to live. And so... With every generation, humanity clings to the promise. But at times, it seems like the promise is way far off. The future looks kind of grim at the flood when God judges the world and everybody's wiped out except for Noah and his family. The future looks grim again on the passage that Kevin preached most recently where God confuses the language and all of a sudden everybody splits up and you've got 70 different families, 70 different tribes. Humanity is no longer united. We're all warring with one another. It seems like all hope is lost. This promise of a hero who's coming to lead us back to the garden, back to the presence of God is oh so distant. But the genealogy is written in such a way to de-emphasize death and to subtly shift our hearts toward the idea of promise. And it ends with Abram. And then God kicks off this new phase of human history. And he begins to unfold his glorious plan, his glorious plan to keep that promise that he made in the garden. I want us to take a look at it together in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. This is where I want to to focus our attention for the next 15, 20 minutes. God speaks to Abram. This is before his name was changed to Abraham, so I'm going to try to remember to call him Abram. Or I might slip up and call him Abraham. You can hopefully pardon me if I do that. God gives some promises to Abram. There are three promises in three verses. So I want to talk about them. 
talk about what they mean, how they relate to human history, how they relate to what happened in Charlottesville, and then what they mean for our everyday lives. First promise that God made to Abram was the promise of land. The promise of land. I should have verse 1 up on the screen. God says to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Now we know from some of the other verses around here that Abram lives in this city called Ur. Ur of the Chaldees. It's it's the the Chaldean region of the, the ancient Mesopotamian world. And he lives in this city called Ur. With his family, with his people, with his tribe. He's apparently a wealthy guy. He's got a lot of stuff. We see that recorded. He's, he's got servants. He's got tents. He's got cattle. He's got herds. He's got a lot of stuff. And God says, Abram, get up and go. Take your people. Take your stuff. Leave this land behind. I want you to trade it in for a land that you haven't seen yet. This would be like uh, you own a brownstone in Brooklyn because your grandparents purchased it a long time ago, and so it's been handed down to you. And you own a brownstone in Brooklyn. And then God comes to you and says, hey, um, I want you to leave it behind. Like, give it to your neighbor or something. I want to take you somewhere else. I'm not really telling you where exactly. I want you to cross the Hudson River. I want you to go north. I've got something good for you. I've got something good for you. Trade in this land for the land I'm going to give you. For many of us, that would be a daunting proposition. To leave behind the security, the comfort, the stability of the land that we had. Especially here, we know how tough it is to actually own anything in New York City. God says, Abram, leave your land and go take possession of another land. So Abram gets up and he goes. He pursues this other land. And God tells Abram, and and, and the promise is repeated throughout the rest of Genesis, this promise of the land. And ultimately, that's why the entire first five books of the Bible were written to give to the Israelites as they prepared to enter this land. So the promise is repeated. It's, it's elaborated upon. God doesn't go into great detail here. He just says, Abram, I got a land for you. Get up and go. So Abram goes. Along the way, some of his family dies. And he continues on this journey with taking care of his nephew Lot. He's got his wife Sarai, and they go with all their people, with all their stuff. They trade in this land for a land they haven't seen yet, a land they haven't been to yet. God promises Abram a land, but he also promises him a people. He doesn't just promise him a land. He promises him a people. Look at verse 2. God said, Abram, if you do this, If you trade in your brownstone for this unspecified plot of land I'm going to give you, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. 
God promises to Abram that a great people would emerge from within him. Only problem was that Abram, according to the text, is 75 years old. His wife Sarai is barren. They're unable to have kids. Now think about the magnitude of this promise. God doesn't just come to an elderly couple and say, hey, I'm going to do a one-time special pass, maybe some in vitro fertilization or something, so you can have one child. No, that's not the promise, because that would be too, too, too hard. He says, I am going to make a mighty nation emerge from you. It's like um, God never wants to do anything easy. So he throws out this big, bold, audacious promise. Abram and Sarai, I know you've given up. I know you think you can't have kids. You're too old. Time has passed you by. But not only are you going to have a child, you're going to have a series of descendants, a mighty people, a great nation, and your name will become great. We know as we continue to read the Old Testament, as we read these first five books of the Bible, that we see that this people is the Jewish people, the ancient Jews, the Israelites. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. If you're familiar with the Bible, it's got two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament's about the first two-thirds of the Bible, and it's the story of the Israelites living in the land. God says, Abram, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. So I want to put this in context with what Kevin talked about a couple of weeks ago. Kevin talked about what's called the table of nations in Genesis 10 and 11. And the table of nations, it tells us that that because of sin, God confused the language at Babel. And then the world was split up into 70 different families. 70 different families. And God, in this moment, That's something that some of us might struggle to accept. God picks one of those families to be his people. That may not sit right with a lot of us, especially in light of the ethnocentrism and racism that we've seen on display in Virginia the last couple of days. But hang with me, all right? I think you'll like where this is going. There are 70 nations. There are 70 tribes. There are 70 families. God comes over here and he's like, I'm going to pick this one. This son of Shem, whose name is Abram. I'm going to pick him and I'm going to make him a mighty nation. His descendants will become great. And I will make this man, Abram, a great man. And blessing will be synonymous with his name. Don't ever miss the significance of what happens in this moment. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like a Grand Central, right? You go to Grand Central and you see all these different trains. You're like, which train do I get on? There's all of these different tracks, all of these different lines. At the Tower of Babel, in the Table of Nations, there were 70 different tracks. God picks one. But not only does he pick it, he rebuilds and redirects the track. And he says, I'm going to put Abram on this train. It's not going to Ur of the Chaldees anymore. Now it's going 
to Canaan. Now it's going to the promised land, to the land that I will give him. And I am going to redirect this one family. And in redirecting this one family, in building a new line, a new track for this train, I'm going to redirect the entire course of human history. He says, Abram, if you follow me out to this place you've never been, I'll give you a land. I'll give you a people. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that they even blinked at the idea that they could have children, that they could have a, a mighty nation come from them. They just get up and go. But the third, and I think most important promise that God makes to Abram is in verse 3. God promises him a land, a people, and then in verse 3, a blessing. He promises him a blessing. Verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God tells to Abram, look, as you're on this journey into this place you've never been before, don't worry, I'll be with you. I know you're a little bit afraid. I know you're maybe intimidated. But I'll be there with you and I will bless you. And we know when we read the, the next 10 or so chapters of Abraham's life, we see that when people stood up against and opposed Abraham, God cursed them. And when people sided with Abraham, God blessed them. God kept his promise in the first half of verse 3. And it's a very simple promise. I'll bless those who bless you and your descendants, and I will curse those who, bless you, who curse you and your descendants. But the coolest part of this verse is the second half of, those, of this verse. And that's really where I'd like us to kind of attempt to land the plane. Because it's not just that God blesses Abraham. It's that through Abraham, God blesses the world. God says, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Remember how we talked about the, the table of nations and how there's 70 different families. And God picks one family. And let's, let's not sugarcoat it. He picks one ethnic group of people to be his people. That can, that can make us feel very uncomfortable. But it says in this verse that he picks this people to bless the other 69 families. There are 70 families in the table of nations. God picks one to bless the other 69. God says, Abram, you have been blessed to be a blessing. Abram, you are my chosen vehicle of blessing and salvation for the world. For the last 2,000 years, Christian theologians and writers have been pretty united in interpreting the second half of this verse as a prophecy about the Jewish descendant of Abram who would come and be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Because about 2,000 years ago, there was this descendant of Abraham. He was a carpenter from Nazareth. He came as a part of this family. There were 69 other families, but he came as a part of this family. But then God, through Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the Jewish Messiah, not just of Israel, but for the entire world, he demonstrates that the promise 
as Abram understood it was, was not just for one family. It was not just for one ethnic people. It was not just for one culture. It's for everybody. Now, I think Abram got that thousands of years before Jesus ever lived. Abram, you will be blessed to be a blessing. So to go back to our, to our analogy of, uh, of Grand Central and God redirecting the course of history and, and, and building a new track and putting Abram and his family on this train, they're going. But God says, Abram, this train is not about you. It's not about getting your people safely to the promised land. Yeah, I care about that. That's important. And I'm going to keep my promises to you. But it's bigger than that. Abram, this train is the vehicle of my blessing upon the entire earth. This train is the incubator of promise for the other 69 nations, for the other 69 families. This train is how the promise will be kept alive from generation to generation to generation, climaxing and culminating in the person of Jesus. The Jewish Lord who would live and die, not just for the Jews, but the other 69 families as well. This is part of the reason why the domestic terrorism and the white supremacy that we saw on display in Charlottesville this weekend was so horrific and so evil. It's wrong on many levels, but one of the reasons that it's wrong is because it runs counter to God's ancient promise to Abram. God said, Abram, I'm picking your people, but I'm not picking your people for your sake. I'm picking your people for the sake of every family, every nation, and every culture. Because one day, I will send somebody from your line to lead all the peoples of the earth back to the garden, back into the presence of God. And so Jesus came as a dark-skinned, Aramaic-speaking descendant of Abram. As a Jewish man, and he sits now upon the throne of heaven, preparing to come again. All of those who embrace the racism, the white supremacy, the acts of terror that we saw unfold over the last two days, those people are in opposition to God's promise to Abram. They wouldn't have liked Abram. They wouldn't have liked Jesus. He doesn't speak English. He wasn't white. God makes a promise. Three promises, actually. Land, people, blessing. And it's the blessing in particular that ripples out and touches every culture and every tribe. So that when you fast forward to the end of the Bible, you go to Revelation which is what I preached on last week in the park. And you see, it says in Revelation 5, that every nation, every tribe, and every tongue is gathered around the throne of God. What's happened? What's happened is that Jesus, the descendant of Abram, coming from this family, has redeemed the other 69 families, and he's brought them into heaven with him. My friends, this is the entire story of the Bible in three verses. Genesis 1 through 11 is designed to get us to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, so that we can understand that God is initiating a grand scheme, a grand story 
to redeem all the peoples of the earth and to bring humanity back because we were meant to be in relationship with our creator. This is the story. It's not just the story of Genesis. It's the story of the entire Bible. Paul would later say in in the book of Galatians and Romans that, that Abraham understood the gospel ahead of time. I think this is a place where he... He begins to understand major ideas about God's unfolding plan of redemption for the human race. God says, Abram, I'll give you a land. I'll make you into a mighty people. We get those first two parts from the history of the Old Testament. But most importantly, he says, I will will bless you to be a blessing. Your people will be the vehicle of promise, the incubator of blessing for all the families of the earth. This is why we strive so diligently to be a church for all nations, for all cultures, for all classes, for all people. Because God didn't pick Abram for Abram's sake. God picked Abram and his family for the sake of all the other families. They were blessed to be a blessing. Now, where do we go from here? How do we, how do we wrap up? How do we land this plane? I want to show you a picture of a storybook that uh, my kids like. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my wife and I have a four-and-a-half-year-old girl named Aaliyah and a one-and-a-half-year-old son named Xavier. They love Curious George. So we like to go to the library, check out Curious George books. We check out Curious George DVDs. We have Curious George like um, stuffed animals. And my son Xavier can't sleep unless Curious George is in the crib with it. So it's a really big deal, okay? Now, um, if you know anything about Curious George, you know that there are two main characters in the story. I'm going to see how many of you know anything about Curious George. Who are the, name one of the two main characters. Monique. The man with the yellow hat. And and who's the other? George, right? (laughs) So the author is... Margaret and H.A. Reyes. Usually it just says H.A. Reyes. So let's say that uh, the man with the yellow hat doesn't like his role in the story. He says, you know what, I'm not feeling this yellow thing today. I want to wear a red hat or a, or a blue hat or a green hat or a purple hat or anything other than yellow. And so he tries to start negotiating with the author of the story. To write his own role. It wouldn't work. Because that's not the role he was meant to play in the story. God calls us to be rooted in this ancient story of Genesis 1 through 11. He calls us to submit to this story. And what happens is that many of us try to write our own script. We try to write our own story. We don't like the role that we've been given by God. We don't like some command or some rule or something he says. We don't like some aspect of our identity. So we try to rewrite the story. We say, I know you said that. I know you said don't eat from the tree in the garden. But, and like Eve, we keep doing our own thing. And it always leads to disillusionment and despair. 
Because when humanity throws off the shackles and says, I, I can live however I want without my creator, he lets us. He lets us live however we want. And we usually end up miserable. Because we weren't made to live that way. The man with the yellow hats was meant to wear yellow hats. You and I were meant to live in relationship to our creator. And to follow every good command he lays out for us. Not just in Genesis 1 through 11, but in the entire Bible. We find freedom. We find joy. We find satisfaction. And we find beauty. When we submit to the story. Doesn't mean we have to always understand it. There may be aspects of the story of the Bible that rub you the wrong way, or a command that you're like, man, I don't like that command. Join the club. I feel that way sometimes. But you know what? I know I was made to wear yellow hats. I know that because God is good, every command that flows from his mouth is good. And so I submit the story and that is the Christian life one writer called it a long obedience in the same direction we're just putting one foot in front of the other just obeying God submitting to the story if you pull out your response card I've got a couple of next steps and the first one we've already begun to talk about maybe there's an aspect of Genesis 1 through 11 that you've struggled with maybe you've struggled with issues of faith and Science and how they fit together. Maybe you've struggled with issues of, of sexuality that we discussed in Genesis chapter 2 or elements of race and culture, a lot of heavy things that we have discussed. And you're like, I see what it says in the Bible, but I, I just don't want to go there. Maybe today what you need to do is to check that box and say, I'm just going to submit to the story. I'm just going to acknowledge that the master author knows what he is doing. I don't know what he's doing. I don't understand, and I don't get it. But I'm just going to submit to it and obey it. You see, a lot of times what we want to know, if we come from a churchy background, we want to learn more info about God. That's not the problem. The problem is we don't obey the info that we already know. My dad, who's a pastor, says that American Christians are educated far beyond their level of obedience. We need to know more about God, but chances are we just need to start doing what we know. We need to submit to the story. Second, I'd suggest that we need to rep our roots. We need to rep our roots. So, uh, somebody asks you where you're from, you tell them, right? So, well, I'm from Florida, or I'm from Jamaica, I'm from India, I'm from Singapore. We have all of these different cultures in our church, right? And so, so we wrap our roots. We say, this is where I'm from. This is, this is, this is who I am. And we share about our identity. And then, and then uh, you might even get more as you get to know somebody. You might say, well, these are my political views, or these are my this, or my that, or you know, I like these sports teams. And, and so we, we wrap our roots we show our identity. We show where we are from. God calls Abram to have roots that are nourished in this story. And then all of Israel, by extension, to have roots that are nourished in this story. And he calls us, like he called Abram, 
like he called the people of Israel to be a light to the nations. So that our neighbors look at us and they see the glory of God on display in this community, that there is something counterculturally different about life within the family of God. And we wrap our roots. We give an answer to those who ask us the reason of the hope that is within us. We wrap our roots. This speaks of our mission in this world. We weren't just created to do a nine-to-five job. Although God has called us to do that, I'm not diminishing that in the least bit. That was part of what God told Adam to do in Genesis 2. He told Adam and Eve to work in the garden. He created vocation. He created work, and it was good, and it was glorious. But God has called us in the midst of our work, in the midst of our classes that we take, in the midst of everything that we do, the parenting, all of that mundane stuff of life. God has called us to be missionaries. People who rep our roots. We tell people where we're from. So yeah, I'm from Florida. But that's not the whole story of my identity. My roots actually go back to that dark-skinned Jewish man who spoke Aramaic and was murdered on the cross. That's where my roots go. My roots go back to Abram, son of Shem, who was the son of Noah. My roots go back to Abel, murdered by his brother. My roots go back to Adam, a direct creation of Almighty God. These are my roots. These are my stories. If you're a child of God, they're your story as well. These are your roots as well. And our responsibility is to represent, to rep our roots. Lorenzo, would you mind coming down front and helping me with something? Um, so, Sandra and I brought some plants to give away today. Lorenzo, would you mind passing those out to everybody? I want everybody, there, there's four in a box, so don't grab four, but take, take one out. I want everybody to grab a plant. As Lorenzo is passing that around, here's what I want to challenge you to do. We've spent four months talking about being rooted. We've spent four months talking about nourishing the, the identity, nourishing these roots. I think there's four in a box, Lorenzo, so you'll need to take one out. People probably don't want four. Um, Kevin, would you mind maybe? Maybe it's a two-person job, sorry. Um, I wanted to give you something tangible, something to sit on your desk at work, Something to put on your dresser at home, your nightstand. I know Rachel loves plants. I tend to kill them. I try not to do that with these. I mean, I don't kill them on purpose, mind you. It just kind of happens. Um, but every, every plant has roots, right? I don't particularly know what kind of plants or what kind of roots these plants have. These plants are called succulents. And... Uh, but I know they've got roots. So as you, as you receive your plants, my challenge to you simply is to put it somewhere where you're going to see it every day and you're going to be challenged about your roots, your spiritual roots. Use this plant as a metaphor for your life, for where you've been and where God has called you.
and root your story in the story of God. Be rooted in the unchanging narrative of Scripture. The master story of God that controls everything else. Perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. And some of this conversation that we've been having doesn't make sense to you. You understood some of what we were saying, but you feel kind of like you're on the outside looking in. I get that. I understand that. I would just say that there's no shame in being in church and not feeling like you're totally aware of, of what's going on. The message of the gospel is the good news that a descendant of Abraham came in fulfillment of the promise, was died, or he was killed on the cross, he rose from the dead, and he's returning again to complete God's plan, to finish God's promise that he gave to Abraham. We don't get included in that promise through our good deeds, through getting baptized, through church attendance, through prayer. We get included and grafted into that promise through belief and through faith alone in that son of Abraham. If you're not sure that you're a Christian, if you're not sure that when he comes again, he's going to be taking you to paradise with him, then I'd encourage you, come talk to me. We can know for sure that we're going to heaven when we die. But for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who believe that we're a part of this story, I want us to be rooted. Rooted in this story. There is no other story, no other narrative that can control us. We were meant to be rooted in the story of God. Let's bow together for prayer. I think today we're just going to end without the band coming up to, to lead us. I know our service has been a little bit longer today, so I just want to wrap up our time together as we think, as we reflect, as we pray. I want to encourage you to jot down something on that card. Maybe you need to wrap your roots. Maybe you need to submit to the story. Maybe you're not sure that you're a child of God and you want to ask for prayer. You want to write something down and say, hey, I want to talk to one of the pastors about a spiritual issue or a question that I have. Please feel free to jot that down and we will reach out to you in the coming week or two. Let this be a moment where we submit to the story and make a decisive decision to wrap our roots. Lord Jesus, we come before you because you are, are a good God. You have shaped us by this story. And we choose to submit to it 